All right, our scripture this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Amen. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you today. Uh, I'm really excited to get into today's text I just feel, uh, and, and topic because I just feel like it's just so timely on so many fronts. But I'm also really uh, excited to do this by way of getting through to the next part of the book of Ephesians. What do I mean by that? I feel like there's really a payoff when you go through a book like this to understand that the topics we get to and that are near and dear to God's heart aren't ones that we're just kind of choosing or picking, which has its place. That's helpful way approach to take. But when you kind of do the work of going through a book to get to the place where you are and you see kind of how it fits in, there's, there's a bit of a payoff there. And I believe that's true of the topic we're going to be looking at today. What we've seen through this series that we were calling Identity is that in Christ, God has done everything for us. Uh, Ephesians 1 through 3 are just Paul coming out the gates, this, this apostle of, of the Lord just coming out the gates just to say, this is how God has blessed us. This is all that he has done for those who are followers of Christ. Uh, chapter 1, he says, we have every spiritual, gifting, uh, every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 2, he says, though we are dead in our transgressions and our sin, we have been made alive in Christ. And then in chapter 3, if you were here last week, you know that he started to make this kind of conclusive statement to kind of turn the corner. But he said, wait, 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 I got, interrupting himself, he said, I got one more thing I got to tell you about. This mystery that's been made known. And essentially that mystery is God established his church. So what we've seen in chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Ephesians is Paul just building and saying, this is what God has done for us. Well, here at the turn into chapter 4, we see Paul move from what God has done for us to what is our response. So if you're listening, that first verse starts with Paul saying, okay, then, or actually the, the Greek word there is more, therefore. So because of all this we've been talking about, because of what God has, has done for us, therefore, or so then, here's what it means. And the topic of first importance, the, the biggest thing that God through his word says, okay, you've seen these mountaintop promises I have for you. Here's the first thing I want you to consider. Christians, my followers, is to pursue unity. Uh, we need to understand the importance of Christian unity. I believe that's all the more important today than ever before because there's a lot of division out there in the world right now. But there's also a lot of division in the church, whether that's in local churches or whether that's among churches or whether that's Christians out there with the microphones or whatever it might be, there's a lot of disunity Implicit to what Paul is saying here is unity doesn't just happen. It has to be worked for. In fact, actually what he says in verse 3 is you have to make, quote, every effort to keep unity. 
So that's what we're going to talk about today. This is very near and dear to the Lord in terms of like, man, if you, if you could think of like one thing that God would say, the first thing I want to tell you after all these promises, what would you have put in that place? God answers for himself here through Paul saying, I want you to strive for you. I want you to make every effort towards it because it's near and dear to his heart. And by the way, it's part of his plan to bring eternal hope, salvation, and love through Christ into the world. So how do we do that? That's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Paul's going to show us and we're going to jump into that. But first, let's pray. Father, what a, what a gift to be here gathering today on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday to, to worship your name. Uh, thank you for Isaiah's ministry to us, to, to, to remind us that worship isn't just about doing. In fact, it's not first and foremost about that at all. It's just about being, being still before you. And so, Father, as we turn now to, to your word, we want that same spirit. We want your spirit to help us Look to understand with, the heart, with, with our minds, but also with our hearts, what, what you have for us today. As a, as a church, collectively, but also as individuals, Lord, would your spirit speak to us now as we continue to worship you by looking at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to look at how we are to strive for unity, this, this most important of, of topics and callings, really, for the, for, the, for the Christian. But before we do that, we need to understand kind of uh, an unsaid assumption that Paul is working with here, okay? There's kind of an underlying premise that he doesn't really say, but that's, it's kind of implicit there that we need, to, we need to take note of. And that is kind of what we were talking about last week, that we, are, we ought to be, as a church, the words we were using, connected and committed, we need to be connected in the church. We need to be committed in the church. In other words, God didn't just save us. He didn't do all these wonderful things just to bring us into relationship with himself, as wonderful as that is. Personal relationship with God is absolutely at the heart of the gospel, but so too at the heart of the gospel is God brings us into relationships with other people who follow Jesus, into a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to be connected. We need to be committed to one another. We need to be in relationship with, with others. And I think this is so important right now in our cultural moment, like almost especially so in, in new ways that we haven't considered before. Cindy and I were on a call with an accountant uh, a few months back. This was kind of at, towards the end of the pandemic, although I don't even know what that means. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of the pan pandemic, but starting to see a light at the en end of the tunnel or, you know, that kind of space. And we were talking to him, this, this, this uh, accountant who's really an expert in the field, a guy who works with a lot of church leaders, not just in the Bay Area, but across the U.S., works with a lot of churches of, of many different sizes, the whole thing. So he just, he's just kind of an expert in all that, has a lot of years of experience. And so one of the things I like to do in, on calls or just in conversations with folks like that is ask them, hey, what are, what are the trends you're seeing? Uh, because, you know, you kind of see the chessboard and, and all the pieces, at least on, in your area of expertise. What, what are you seeing? And I thought he was going to answer that question by talking about finances or like church government relationships or tax law. I, like I just, I thought he was going to go there, but he didn't, he didn't go anywhere near what I thought he was going to say. Instead, he said, you know what I'm most concerned about for the church, for Christians in particular? is getting too used to going to church in pajamas. I was actually just talking about that uh, this morning with, with someone. It, it is going to church in pajamas. And he said it this way. He said, the reason why I'm so concerned about this is, and don't take me, you know, hear the spirit in which I'm going to say this to you. Like, I'm a, very, I'm a very mature Christian. I've gone to church my whole life. My wife and I, we are very committed to the church. We've been very involved, and, and we understand the calling and importance of that, but we ourselves, every Sunday morning, are like, should we go today? Oh. 
He said, man, if I'm feeling that way, if my wife and I are feeling that way, it's like, how much more? He's like, that's the big concern. This accountant had for the church. And you know, without making anybody feel bad, that's why we have these services available. But the reality is, if we start to move into this becoming the habit or the norm, uh, we have these services for when, for when we're out of town, say we want to remain connected, or if we have health issues, or whatever it might be. But what, what Paul is saying here is an underlying given and assumption is there is unity only happening in community. Unity only happens in community. We have to be in relationships, and not, not just kind of, sort of, but like committed. And that happens very wonderfully here. Now, we show up to worship. It's, it's wonderful. But it's, this is the starting ground as the assembly. We talked about this last week in terms of what the church is. As, as the, body of the, the, the members of the body come together and worship, we, we kind of get to know each other. And then from here, we can develop relationships. But the point is, we have to get intentional. And that's why Paul is saying, make every effort, underlying, unsaid thing. Unity, uh, unity only happens in community. Okay, so what are these ways that Paul gives us? What are these thoughts that he equips us for pursuing unity, for striving, for making every effort towards unity? This thing that's so near and dear to the Lord's heart. Uh, we're going to look at three things today. Uh, the first we're going to look at in verses one through three um, is uh, are our ingredients for unity, if I can call it that. Okay, I'm um, looking at these verses, that's just kind of what came to mind, but we see ingredients for unity. So verse one again says, as a prisoner of for the Lord then, or therefore, based on all these promises, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then he says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. All right, so he gives us these ingredients for unity. The first ingredient is, of course, humility. He says, be humble. Actually, he doesn't just say be humble. He says, be completely humble. You know what, like, the, the slayer of unity is pride. Pride will just eat up unity for lunch. Um, it, it, it's just, and what is pride? Pride is saying, you know what? The world revolves around me. I know best. I am best. And you know, the thing about pride, and we've talked about this if you've been, if you've been with us for when we've talked about this kind of topic in the past. The thing about pride is we all know the, the obvious and perhaps most obnoxious form of pride that kind of puffs out his chest and says, it's all about me. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I'm about. Okay? We all have that image of, of pride in our minds. But then there's a far more insidious and perhaps all the more destructive form of pride that we rarely actually give thought to. And in fact, we can actually put up a facade that makes it, think, that makes it seem like we're anything but prideful. And that is what C.S. Lewis talks about when he says, humility is not just thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Where pride can seep in, where we can have this idea, this worldview, this this functioning nature about ourselves of like the world revolves around me can be, man, life just stinks. It's so hard. Everything's hard for me. Like, oh no, like, how do I get through this? Um, we had a staff member this last week say something very insightful. We all know the times in which we're in. Everybody right now across the board, just about, is stretched thin. As a society for the last two years, particularly where we live, you've, you've probably stretched thin. Not a lot of outlets, you know, a lot of isolation, maybe tough relationships, maybe responsibilities in the midst of juggling all these other things. There's a lot of people really reeling right now. And by the way, before I move further, if that's you, the Lord cares for you, loves you. And as a church, we're called to care and love for one another in the midst of that. 
But as we're talking about unity, if we're not careful, that thought of like, man, life is just hard for me. Woe is me can easily be destructive towards unity. Our staff member was looking at all that and said, man, there's a real temptation. There's a lot of people across the board likely giving in right now to this thought, not so much having the posture of what, what's, what's in it for those folks, but what's in it for me. Uh, I was thinking about this this last week. Like I'm out in the community uh, coaching my son's baseball team. And if you've been in conversation with me, you probably know I've been complaining about it. I signed up to be a head coach, something I told myself I'd never do again. So much response, like just time. Like last week we had three games. We had three games. It's like those nights are just in addition to everything. And Cindy, this is a confessional moment. Okay, guys. Cindy knows I've just been complaining about it. I'm like, oh man, I hate this. Why am I like, oh, I don't, I have, I have too much stuff to do. I have too much stuff on my plate. Why did I sign up for this? You know what Cindy very graciously and gently has been reminding me of? Hey, remember, this is an opportunity to be in the community. Just love and care for folks who are, by the way, going through just as much, if not more, without Jesus. And I'm just like, man, it is so easy for me when I get stressed out or when I get stretched thin. I wonder if you can relate to just be like, man, my life's hard. And in the midst of doing that, miss the fact that the world doesn't actually revolve around me. By the way, it doesn't even revolve around them. It revolves around the Lord who says, look to the interests of others before your own. And if there's ever a time where the church needs to lead out in looking to the interests of others, it's now. But here's the first ingredient, humility. And you know what humility does? Humility starts with, I am in desperate need of Jesus myself. I need Jesus. He saves me. He has saved me by grace. I am deeply flawed and probably, just probably, actually, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm living out of pride and making things more about me than I ought to. Humility starts there. Humility is a starting point for unity. And if there are any people who are equipped to do this, it's Christians. Now, are we known for necessarily doing this? No, not necessarily because we're broken people. But the whole gospel is God died for us and we didn't deserve it. So it starts with humility. That's the first ingredient. The second ingredient is gentleness. He says, be gentle. Now, if you're here a few months ago when I did a message uh, on gentleness specifically, you may remember that the illustration we used is the opposite of gentleness is coming in like a wrecking ball. So insert Miley Cyrus joke there. It, that's the opposite of gentleness. It's coming in like a wrecking ball. Gentleness is coming in. It's Okay, so it, it's, it's, it works in tandem with humility. If humility says, hey, I need to approach the situation in relationship such that I might not be right, or even if I am right, I have no moral high ground to step on. If that's humility, gentleness is now, okay, my approach needs to be thoughtful and loving. Which incidentally means we don't just let things be. Let's say, you know, there's a, there's a relationship's out of sync and you've determined, well, this, the conversation probably does need to happen. Gentleness implicitly doesn't mean, well, you just let it go. No, gentleness just means the approach needs to be very thoughtful and loving and caring. So a classic example here would be, you know, a parent with a kid or kids that are fighting. Right? Kids, as they want to do, will fight from time to time and they'll be arguing. And during the pandemic, I'm sure that was happening to a greater degree. And it's not like parents had a, you know, just a, a lot, a wealth of resource of energy and all that sort of thing. And so like when kids are fighting, they're yelling at each other. If you come in like a wrecking ball, the opposite of gentleness, you're like, you're yelling, stop yelling. Like I'm, I'm tired. I got to work so I can Get done so I can put food on the table so you guys will stop yelling later. Can you just stop yelling now? You know, that's the wrecking ball approach. 
Gentleness doesn't just go, well, let's just let them argue and let it be. Gentleness goes, I don't have energy, but I need to enter into this with thought, love, and care. Okay, okay, what's going on? Why'd you throw that at your brother? <laughs> well, he says, well, she, well, okay, what, what are you saying? Well, she started, okay, okay. Before we even get into right or wrong, we might not even get there. Is, is that right to throw at your brother? Is that what you'd want him to do? To no, but he, okay, I understand that. But would you want him to, it, I don't need to play, I'm starting to play this out a little too much. See, I've been in that. You hear the gentleness is going, and, and look, if you're a parent, you know, you don't just have energy and space to go, okay, I'm going to, but gentleness is being there, very thoughtful, even discipline is saying, you know, my approach is going to be loving and thoughtful as I can be, right? As you, as you can with God's help. That's what gentleness is here. Uh, you know, I use an example of with kids, um, I have a, a, a pastor mentor of mine. It's, it's, it's amazing. He's so gifted at it. He's, he's, he's older in age. He's very, very mature and wise. And I think this plays a lot into it. But oftentimes when he's kind of like helping me see something that maybe I'm not seeing, he'll just go, oh, you know, I, man, uh, man, for me, I have always not seen this situation certain way. And I've, I've had to learn in this as I go. And he, like, I don't even know where he's going yet. And then he'll say, have you thought about yourself? You know, instead of just coming in, David, you just, you're stupid, you need to change. He very thoughtfully goes, hey, I, you know, I, I struggle with this. And maybe I'm not seeing this right, but David, have you, have you thought about this? But that's kind of a, a gentle approach uh, as, we, as, we, as we think about this ingredient for, for unity. The third ingredient for, for unity is patience. Okay, he says, be, be patient. And I think what he's saying here is as we approach things, hopefully with, with God's help in humility and with gentleness, patience means having the understanding that things aren't going to just change with the snap of fingers. Right? Things take time. Uh, if they need to change at all, by the way, that goes back to the humility piece, right? Maybe, maybe we might not be right. But patience just understands things, things are going to take time. Uh, for an example of this, look no further than the idea of marriage. Because marriage, you're linking arms and lives with, with somebody else and getting to know them and all their idiosyncrasies and all their sharp edges that they're going to have because they're people in need of Jesus themselves. Patience goes, you know what, it's, you know, maybe I've identified something that needs to change. Maybe I'm not, not right. That's the humility part. But then even, let's say that is the case, it's just, it's going, it's just going to take time. Patience is, is just letting it letting it happen over time. And I think, you know, so I've, I've been sitting in this this last week in my study. It seems to me that there's a bit of a progression here, okay? There's a bit of a sequence because it seems to me the starting point really is humility because if you don't have humility, the whole thing's derailed from the beginning, wouldn't you say? And then, and then you, if, if you are seeing something and you're approaching it with hopefully a humble spirit and understanding, then you move to gentleness. That's the approach, Right? be thoughtful and loving in that. And then, okay, after the approach, if nothing, nothing happens or it doesn't happen for a while, that's the patient part. Are we, are we tracking? It, it seems to me like there's a bit of a progression, which actually leads us into the third, excuse me, the fourth ingredient, and that is forbearance. He says, bear with one another in love. It seems to me, bearing with here means, and even when they don't change or they don't seem to change like we perceive they ought to, we still love. We care for them. Because you know what the world does? The world goes often, you know what? If you're not changing, as I have deemed you ought to be, I'm done. I'm, I'm through. Like, let's just end this relationship now, or I'm just going to let you know 
uh, in non-physical terms, like emotional terms, I'm just, I'm done with you. Like, I, I don't need that relationship. But the call here for followers of Jesus is to bear with and, and to forgive when mistakes are happen, happening. Uh, in our small groups, in our current groups, I know many of you guys studied a couple weeks ago, Colossians 3. It has the same thought there, but he very quickly tacks on this thought that I think is so helpful. Same thought. He says, bear with one another and forgive as Christ has forgiven you. That's such an important thing to remember in all these things. But when you talk about bearing with and offering forgiveness, we need to understand that this is ultimately something we can and ought to do because Christ did it for us and regularly does it for us. It's like as Isaiah said, we're not just saved once, we're being redeemed as well. Works in progress. That God through his spirit and grace is, is choosing to just very graciously bear with us. But here's the other implication here. As we are called to bear with others, others are called to bear with us. We just don't see that side of it, typically. Which brings us back to humility. Paul is not just writing to the person you're sitting next to or, 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 or you're thinking about. In the, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like when he was writing this letter into the book of Ephesians, almost certainly these folks were like, oh, I'm so glad that so-and-so is listening to this. You ever do that in a sermon? I'm so glad so-and-so is listening to this. They just need to understand to be patient. They just need to, under, they need to work on humility, gentleness. Like, oh yeah, I see that. I said, oh, I'm so glad. Oh, they didn't, maybe they didn't listen. I'll send a link kind of, but I'm going to shade it, you know, not be direct about it. Hey, this was a fun sermon, you know. But the minute we, hey, by the way, I, I've, I've been there, okay? So the minute we do that, we, we miss entirely what Paul's talking about. He's saying, you personally in the community make every effort. This is not a message for the other person. This is a message for each and every one of us. And it starts with humility. That, that's the starting point. It starts with saying, you know, I, I probably am seeing this. And, and, and it's just remembering the gospel. Because the gospel is, God made himself humble. I mean, that thought is just mind-boggling. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But he, he humbled himself to take on flesh, become a person, to die a death of, of, for, of a sinner when he was perfectly sinless. And we talk about pride being the world, thinking the world revolves around us. He literally could say, life revolves around me and be accurate. And yet he looked to the interests of you and me. That, his humility, his gentleness. I mean, I don't have time to go through it all. How God, Jesus is incredibly gentle. When he could have, he could have come in like a wrecking ball. You read the stories. He didn't. So often not. And even when he amped it up a little bit, he was still gentle. And then you talk about patience, God's patience with us, his forbearance. This is, this is our call. This is top of mind thing to live a life worthy of the calling of all the amazing things God has done for us. God says, make every effort for the unity. Those are the ingredients for unity. Uh, these next two points, don't worry, we're going to go through a lot, a lot more quickly. Um, the second one we see is Paul gives us a framework for unity. See these in verses four through six. So I'll repeat verse three here, but it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he adds this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so even a casual reading of this text, you can just see that Paul's giving us a, a framework for unity with all these ones that we, you know, he lists off 
these, how we're to be one in seven different ways, body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, uh, one God and Father. It seems to me what, what Paul is doing with this text, with this, this little statement here, he's giving us this framework in focusing in on the high-level major tenets of the faith. Now, this, he's not being exhaustive. He could have talked about other things, but really he's hitting kind of the, the most important major tenets of the faith. So, for instance, if you look a little more closely, you see that he calls out the Trinity, one Spirit, one Lord, that's Jesus, the Son, God the Father. He calls out how we are to enter into relationship with him. That's kind of important. Actually, it's, it's essential. It's a, it's a major thing. We, one faith, one baptism, which is an expression of that faith, an outward working of that faith. One eternal hope when we put our faith in Jesus. So all these things. Paul is calling out the major tenets of the faith. There's a quote that's oft attributed to Augustine. I don't, in my research this week, I don't think he necessarily said it, but that's beside the point. Here, here's the quote. I think it's really helpful in, in light of what we're talking about. Imagine many of you have heard this. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Of course, charity being the old English word for loving and serving other people, caring for them. Um, again, Paul seems to be calling out, like, hey, here are the essentials, or here are some of the essentials. If you have alignment on the essentials, strive for unity. Just make every effort for it. Okay, now one implication is we need to get clear on the essentials. Okay, that's important. And by the way, we just know Paul was exceedingly clear on getting uh, clear on the essentials. Uh, before he wrote the book of, of Ephesians, this letter to the Ephesian church, he wrote the book of Galatians, which is uh, to the church there in modern day Turkey, that is all about dealing with an essential. And in that letter, Paul doesn't mince words. Basically, some people were coming into the early church and saying, hey, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus for salvation, but you also must be circumcised. So this old sign of the old covenant from the Old Testament, they were saying, yeah, believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also you need to be circumcised and then you will be saved if you do that. But the minute they did that is they moved into essential category. Paul, again, without mincing words, was saying, no, no, no. If you, if you add anything to faith in Jesus for the gospel, you lose the gospel entirely because you're saying it's about your effort what you bring to the table. And the whole point of the gospel is it's everything that God has done for you. I mean, we talked about it in Ephesians 2, remember? So there are things where Paul would go to the mat saying, this is essential. And by the way, even if he did that, he's trying to be gentle and loving, but those were essentials. So we got, we got to get clear on the essentials. You know, think about that in, in our terms. Like, so this is actually one of the markings of, of a cult, by the way, is the same issue of what happened in, that, in the Galatian church. It's saying, essentially, one of the markings of a cult is, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you also must accept this thought, or you must also attend this church to be saved. And if it's not this church, then you're not, you're not saved. Or you must be baptized in this certain way, and there's all these things we could talk about. But that's, that's, one, that's an essential. That would be an essential. Or let's get a little more into kind of the practicals. What if somebody were to say, you know what, I think the ethic uh, on sex in the Bible is, is no good. Like we just, we can reinterpret that today and just see it a little bit differently. No, that's an essential. Wait a minute, David, that's not on our list. One ethic of se uh, on sex, it just says one Lord. And, well, it's an essential, how, how do we know? There's places in the scriptures that say things like the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's elevating it to the level of an essential. 
Now, real quickly, does that mean if we're sexually immoral, we struggle with that sort that we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? No, we all need forgiveness. That's the whole point. Nobody's perfect. We all need Jesus. And by the way, Jesus, in a very famous sermon, said, you know, I'm going to broaden the understanding of sexual immorality to include lust. It's a lot of the human race in that category. What Paul was saying in this other letter, when he elevated to essential, saying they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, he's saying if you teach that that's okay, and that's God and is God's design for you, go have at it. That's what he's talking about. Versus somebody who goes, God, I'm struggling with lust. I, 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 forgive me because I've messed up and I need your help to move forward. That's an essential. Now, what about things like the role of women in ministry or uh, charismatic gifts? Some of you might be like, what, what's that? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't know. Um, but they're important. I'm not, I'm not dismissing them, but I'm just saying, you know, these, these issues can get complicated, or at least, you know, you talk about them. And if you have questions, please come up to me afterwards. The role of, role of women ministry, charismatic gifts, um, mode of baptism, how we are to be baptized, should go all the way under, should be spring. Those seem pretty clear to be in the non-essentials, because you don't have these verses that say, and by the way, those who see the mode of baptism will not inherit, right? And so, we need to get clear on the essentials and, and understand what the non-essentials, or, or hey, let's get, let's get even more practical. What about people who, see, who sit on a different aisle politically? Right? There's, there's a lot of practical things here. We need to get clear on the essentials, but underneath the essentials, we need to decide, okay, look, this is not a choose-your-own-adventure on the non-essentials. We need to look to the scriptures to understand, God, what is it you are saying here? But in the interest of unity, having clear minds on the essentials, and in the non-essentials, liberty. You know, think of it this way. We're going to get to heaven. And by very definition, we're going to be up there and be like, you know, the non-essentials. Some of us are going to be wrong. Some of us are going to be right. Right? By very definition. Because people see these things differently. Okay? Um, I think God's going to go, hey, what did you do with the essentials? And maybe he'll ask about the non-essentials. I tend to think maybe not. I'm, this is all conjecture, okay? For the sake of illustration. But he is going to ask, how did you do on Unity. Did you love and care for your brother and sister on the other side of the political aisle? Did you, did, you, did you strive? Did you make every effort to be patient, to be gentle, to, in humility, forbear? Um, this is the framework for, for uh, unity. I, sh- I mentioned last week that I was uh, one of two pastors at an, an international church in Shanghai, China, and we had very unique circumstances, but we had 3,000 congregants there, about 82 nations represented. If you, if you remember, if you were here last week, I called it a beautiful mess. Like, I was regularly thinking about it as this beautiful mess. Part of the reason why it was so beautiful, even as it was very messy, is that all these Christians from all these denominations, from we call ourselves a multi-denomination, because there's there's no way around it. It's just like everybody's just coming together on the non-essentials, and it was messy, but it was also beautiful. And, and wonderful. Um, that's what we're called to do. We're called to strive to make every effort. And, and Paul gives us a framework here. And so I would just say, uh, Christian uh, brothers and sisters, you know, do you have this mindset, this heart, this, this heart posture of a framework when it comes to other churches that maybe don't see things the way you see it? Or maybe Christians who have a microphone are saying this or that. It doesn't mean you need to agree with them on those sort of things, but the heart is overwhelming me. Love towards them. 
I think, I think a lot of us need a lot of help in this. And boy, the, the world needs a lot of help. This church needs a lot of help in this. And I think this is, this is the antidote that, that God gives us through his word here. So we've seen the ingredients for unity. We see the framework for unity. And finally, we see gifts for unity. Verses 7 and 8. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Uh, I just love this because while we see God's heart is for unity, we see also that his heart is very much not for uniformity. God is uninterested in trying to create little replica Christians running around. He's not looking, he's uninterested in a, a boringly monotonous church that all kind of acts and is the same. He's, he's, but he's excited about diversity in the church. And by the way, this is true in terms of culture and temperament and personality, all those sorts of things. But what he's calling out here is in terms of the gifts that he has distributed in the church. Now, many biblical scholars, at least the ones I was reading this week, say that what Paul is talking about here are essentially what are known in the Bible as spiritual gifts. That is, unique ways that God has equipped people to love and care for others. Now, notice what I just said there. Uh, he doesn't give us spiritual gifts for ourselves. He gives us spiritual gifts for us to steward for others. There's a parable that Jesus taught uh, towards the end of his ministry, famously called the parable of talents. It's one that has had a, it's, it's had a big uh, shaping of my life. And I won't go through it all, but basically Jesus tells the story of a master uh, going on a journey. So he entrusts uh, amounts of talents or, or money to uh, these three servants that he have. The two f- go off and use their talents at once, we're told, and double it. And then the master returns and says very famously, well done, good and faithful servants. Well, there's a third servant that I haven't really tended to focus on too much down the years, who went off, we're told, and buried his talent. Didn't do anything with it. And the master came back and and said, how could you? And he was cast out. I mean, that was a, that's a very sober warning from our Lord who says, hey, I've given you gifts to be stewarded. Use them. And so he gives us spiritual gifts. What are these spiritual gifts? I'll just real quickly, because this is not a message entirely on spiritual gifts. Uh, you can look for those of you who are taking notes at 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. There's lists there, even though those are not exhaustive themselves. But you have gifts like, and by the way, as I read these, listen to for what might be true of you. Gifts of hospitality, faith, Prayer, serving, teaching, encouraging, leading, showing mercy. It's interesting that that's a gift. Generosity, gifts that we need to use. Again, Paul is making the point. God, through Paul, is making the point. You need others and others need you. And you've been gifted for that. And if you're holding on that, you're withholding from the body of members that God has called you into. We need you. And you know, if you're over there like, I don't know my gift. Uh, I don't know if I have a gift. First of all, that's, that's baloney. Your gift, I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't have a strong gift. You know what's cool about this? Because it's not your gift. God has given you a gift. If you don't know what your gift is or you think you might not know, ask a friend. You know, you could find out. Someone will say, oh, you've, you've got the gift of encouragement. You're always so encouraging. By the way, we need encouragers right now. Oh my word, we need encouragers. If you have a gift of encouraging, like, would you please lean into that right now? The church needs you. Not just current, the world needs you. We need encouragement. We've got a lot of negative voices out there. You may have the gift of hospitality. 
This wouldn't be happening if not for the gift of hospitality. It wouldn't be happening this wonderfully if not for the gift of hospitality. Uh, I do not have the gift of hospitality. I, I have come to appreciate the gift of hospitality. When I enter a room, I'm like, wow, this is... But I didn't always do that. I always just kind of assumed, wow, this is a wonderful experience and have no idea that actually a lot of thought and care and love went into like bringing the ambience so that it could... Ha- are, you, are you tracking here? We're all called to use our gifts. I was once asked, and this is a very Silicon Valley software engineer question. Does this mean, Pastor, that we should only use what we have determined or, deci- or believe to be our gifts? Should we not do the others? That's a very like, thoughtful engineer question there. And the answer to that is no. No, we're called to do all of that. We're all called to encourage. We're all, I mean, if, how are you going to love your neighbor if you're not ever being hospitable, right? Uh, we're all called to do all these things. I think the point is we need to lean into those things we feel God has especially equipped us with. Those are like, again, to come back to the encouragement, I'm, <laughs> I'm encouraging you to be an encourager. We need you right now. Oh, showing mercy. I, I didn't even think about this in my study. It just kind of hit me as we were reading this list. That spiritual gift of showing mercy, we could use that right now. Not only in showing mercy to your brothers and sisters or out in the world, but modeling that that's something we need. Uh, these are no small things. These are things that Christ himself has given to the church for the sake of the church, for the sake of the common life here to be developed and cultivated in Christ, that it would go out into the world. All right, there's the three ways we can carry out this most important of callings. As we strive for unity, we have the ingredients for unity, the framework for unity, we have these gifts for unity. It's no small thing that this is the first thing Paul says after all these promises. Here's what it means to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Make every effort for unity. It's no small thing. It's also no coincidence that this is the last thing the Lord himself on the night he was betrayed prayed for his followers. That they, that we might be one, Father, he prayed, as you and I are one. That, they, that the world might see your glory. We talked about this last week. God, through the church, is making his manifold wisdom known to the world. And the first point of application is striving to keep and maintain unity. What's your part in that? What's, what's your role to play? In relationships here, but then also from here out there. Like, there's a lot of disunity out there. We know that. There's a lot of disunity in the church. There's a lot of opportunity for disunity here in the church. I don't even have to be a pastor's kid to, like, feel that as I say it. (laughs) What's your part to play in unity? As we close our time together uh, in in prayer, I just want to give you a moment to kind of think about that on a more personal level. Maybe it's, maybe it's doing a little bit of confession right now. I'll be real. I, 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 need, I need to confess on certain things where I'm not hitting the mark, but that's where the Lord meets us, right? He's, he's making us more into the likeness of his son. Maybe it's asking him to make clear what he would have for you in this. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been already kind of tugging at you, prompt, doing a little prompting in there, letting you know what the next step is. Maybe he's asking his help to, to take that step, whatever it might be, in love and patience and gentleness. Whatever it is, though, this is, this is more than worthwhile, current family, because the church is the light of the world. But not we, Christ in us. And this is our part to play. Let's pray. Father, it it absolutely floors us that you don't just call us to be humble, gentle, patient, 
bearing with one another, but that at the heart of your message is that this is what you have done and, and frankly continue to do for us. We don't deserve your love, your care. And frankly, Father, uh, starting with myself, I, we don't do a great job of living it out, but we are so thankful that you give us your spirit to help us. So Father, would you help us be humble? Would you help us be gentle? Would you help us be patient? Would you help us bear with and forgive? There's a lot of relationships here that mean a lot. And beyond just the getting to know each other and be friends, there's, there's an even greater working happening, and that is your love, your glory is being reflected. Eternity is being shaped. And even that is because of your grace. And so, Father, would you help us? And, I, and my, my prayer is not just for current. My prayer is for all the, the gospel-believing churches in the Bay Area and America, across the world. There's a lot of voices of disunity out there, Father. And often we're not adding in a healthy way to it. So, Father, would you help us have more of a Christ-like approach? We need your help to even understand how to do that, let alone carry it out. But we love and thank you for the beauty of unity that you call us to and equip us for. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.